You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you a diehard comic book collector? Or maybe a lapsed fan? Maybe even someone who has never picked up a comic book in their life. Hi, I'm Remsa Martinez. And I'm Mark Clare. Every single Wednesday at the Second Print Comics Podcast, Remzo and I take a deep dive into the storylines, character arcs, moments, and events that made us the fans we are today. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else podcasts are available. Check out more from the Second Print Comics podcast at secondprintcomics.com. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Well, Kelly, it's been May, June, July, August, September, October. You have been doing Crashing the War Party for six months every Friday. Does it feel like you're six months through, or does it still feel like you started, or does it feel like you've been doing it for a million years? Because I find people are always on like the, I feel like I still just started, and then the yeah. whole, I feel like this has just been going on since the dawn of time. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, thanks to you, I feel like uh, we've been we're we're in a groove, as as they say. But on the other hand, it does still feel new, and I find like I'm learning things all the time in terms of how to better manage our time on the podcast. You know, try to make it more conversational. So I like to say we're still in that in that mode where we're growing and uh, but feeling pretty good about it. And as you know, that we used to do Empire Has No Clothes, which was the sort of progenitor of Crashing the War Party. And uh, so I feel like there was there's some continuum there, like we've been doing it forever, but really just the podcast with Dan and I and, and Barbara Boland is, yeah, it's only six months young. It's, it's crazy when you look at all the topics. I mean, everything from the Iranian uh, nuclear deal to uh, Israeli lobbying to having Dr. Ron Paul on the program. I mean, cool. you, you, hit, you hit the ground hard and mm-hmm. immediately you, you started accomplishing a lot of things that um, a lot of folks in the Beltway, when they try and do a podcast, they kind of have an idea, but then they kind of build up to it. And you and the others just kind of jump straight back into the swing of things with I mean, the, the first episode and each week has always been, you know, incredibly entertaining and informative. I mean, for you, it must feel kind of like going back to your reporter days because you've been in an editor role for so long to actually get to sit down and talk to somebody yeah. and really dive into those topics. It must, must be kind of refreshing. It is kind of refreshing. And I, and I think we do have an advantage because Dan and I have been writing for so long in this space and that we know so many people, mostly, you know, from my point of view, it's mostly people who I've interviewed before and have had as sources. And so I am on a, a friendly basis with many of these folks in the foreign policy world. Uh, that said, you know, we've, we've called upon people we've never met before. And I think, uh, because both of us have had a byline, you know, in at the American Conservative, I've been at antiwar.com for a long time, you know, different places, you know, I people will respond. And I've been, I, I feel like we've been very lucky in terms of our response from people. We haven't got a lot of, uh, or if any, people have turned us down. They said, sure, we'll, we'll come on the show. So that's been very heartening. Uh, but I think it's because we've been working in this space for so long that we've built up a little bit of goodwill and name recognition. Yeah, and I mean, what's what's crazy has been while while editing each episode of the show, I've just been kind of doing my own research. And, you know, while the show is in like the news and commentary and foreign policy space, like when you look at other shows that are kind of akin to it, 
I have yet to find anything outside of maybe Scott Horton where you have a show that talks about foreign policy and national security and defense, where it's not from either an extremely neoconservative or neoliberal perspective. You, you, you go with, you know, I, I wouldn't say kind of like a populist approach, but you take more of a libertarian stance on, you know, let's understand the ramifications of what we're doing, because it hasn't just impacted the taxpayers and citizens of the United States. What we're doing impacts the world, and the world does impact us, whether we want to admit to it or not. So, I mean, being really kind of like the lone, traditionally conservative um, show in this entire space, it just really, it really shocks me. Because I could name really kind of just a small group of people that really talk about these topics, but nobody has really kind of made it their thing. Nobody yeah. has really kind of pointed to them as being, that's the foreign policy guy you bring on. I mean, sometimes you'll get people who talk about other things. You'll get folks that talk about just really anything under the sun, and then they'll get roped in when something in the news happens. Right. But, I mean, it's not, it's not really there. I feel like conservatives have really conceded this space for so long, and with crashing the war party, it's really the only one out there that's actually talking about this stuff from you know really a nonpartisan perspective. Yeah. And I mean, Scott Horton has sort of like paved the way in this regard. I mean, I've, I've been going on his show probably, oh God, probably at least 15 years at this point. I mean, he's really good at what he does. And he has been representing that libertarian uh, anti-war, non-interventionist point of view. But you're absolutely correct. Most of the um, foreign policy, national security shows out there are either very partisan and that they are on the left and you know where they're coming from. So yes, they're against war, particularly when Republicans are in office, uh, maybe a little bit more quiet about it when the Democrats are, are in the White House. Um, and then on the right, it's you know your pro-war, blobby, neoconservative, hawkish point of view. Um, and then in between, it is like pure blob and that it's very establishment. So the people that you have on are your mainstream journalists who everybody calls on when they want, you know, they're from the Washington Post or Politico or uh, New York Times or foreign policy. And so they will give you just the middle of the road consensus thinking, uh, which is usually a pro-liberal internationalist order point of view, like, yes, we have to go into this war or it's our responsibility to protect. And, you know, uh, yeah, we don't really like war, but we're, you know, we, we have to remain in this country like Afghanistan because of the humanitarian. It's, it's all the same stuff that you've been hearing uh, since the Cold War began. And so those those particular uh, podcasts are in abundance because it's really just the, you know, the hive talking to itself, you know, about itself. And so it's a I self licking ice cream cone. It's a self licking ice cream cone, the blob, the Borg, the hive, whatever you want to call it. And so I've been um, very um, heartened when I hear people reach out to us and say, "Oh, we love your show," and I say. You know, I, I'm just so glad to hear people that are that are listening and they're just very excited about the point of view that we're raising on any given subject. And I have to remind myself because I'm surrounded by people who think this way and have been fighting the good fight for so long. But I forget that we are still a small subset of uh, conservatism, a small subset of Washington foreign policy. But I agree with you. I think it's populist. I think once you get outside the beltway or outside of academia or government, you realize that most Americans think this way, you know, and it doesn't matter if they're left or right. You know, I my dad just left here. He's you know, he's a a, a Reagan Democrat who has been voting Republican for the last several elections, um, who, you know, is you would think, oh, he's for you know, uh, more defense spending and more war. No, he, I mean, he, he believes we've overextended ourselves, that Washington is a swamp. He doesn't believe that any of our money is being spent wisely. And, you know, um, you know, he's, he's lived through the Vietnam war era. He knows how the government abuses the privilege of the volunteer uh, military over the last 40 years. So um, it doesn't matter whether you're left or right. Yeah. You're going to have your neocons, who will always say we have to fight for this or we have to fight for that. We need more money for defense. But I think 
most Americans are just tired of war and they're tired of being lied to by the government. Um, I had a boss when I was running campaigns. He was running for city council. And one thing that was funny was we were outside of a polling place and one of our opponents came over and we had a friendly conversation. But the one thing that we both agreed on was the number of people who turned out in this non-year election. It was extremely, I mean, this non-general election year um, election and it was extremely low. And my boss looked at his opponent and he's like, you know, I just don't feel like people are hurting enough. Because like there are some really severe problems, but they think that because they're not feeling it, that it doesn't matter to them or that it's not going to end up affecting them. And I feel like after 20 years, the American people are finally starting to feel it because, you know, we're talking about a lot of people are talking about inflation and the debt and everything. And when they look at it, they're like, wait, where did all these other trillions of dollars come from? And when you look at how much was printed and borrowed during Bush's two terms alone, like that really did set up the stage for really just everyone to go carte blanche with the Fed. And, you know, I don't think there's a coincidence between, you know, almost a century of central banking and nonstop global conflict in which we're going to go ahead and put our soldiers overseas. But I mean, people feel it now. And I, I hear less people arguing about this stuff than than ever before. And, um, you know, like my, my good friend, Ben Stein, we, we disagreed on Afghanistan. He just said we should be there forever. And I was just like, what does forever look like? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Like we can't just be there forever. And he's like, yeah, but we're in Korea and we're yeah, in they Japan. Always say that. And it's just like, that's not, that's not the same situation. And even then we shouldn't be there either. Right. So it's like when, when the show started, I, I already knew that you guys were going to get a good wide swath of people. I never anticipated that we were actually going to pull out of Afghanistan. I mean, it must've been so weird to be doing this now during this point in history, because in a lot of ways you and Dan are like, we told you so, Yeah. but now you're actually getting to talk about it with the people who have also been like, we told you so. And everyone is just kind of sitting still waiting to see what happens next. Yeah, I mean, there's so many emotions because uh, as somebody who's been reporting uh, since the war began nonstop, so I never just took a break and went and started doing like travel writing or something. I mean, I've constant, I've been in every job I have, I have been working and writing about Afghanistan and Iraq and the military and politics. And to see some of the people sort of like, you know, hiding their faces now because they were the biggest cheerleaders of this war or pretending that they always knew that it was unwinnable. They always knew that this was going to end this way. That's very frustrating. And there's nothing really you can do about it because that's the nature of the Washington hive is that, you know, until uh, somebody in their, you know, uh, elite strata decides that the war is going south, nobody is going to take that first leap. And the people that do, the canaries in the coal mine, usually um, they're dead. And uh, I've seen people whose uh, jobs or their, their livelihoods have been threatened or ruined because they were talking about this war and saying uh, the counterinsurgency wouldn't work, that it was unwinnable 10 years ago or more. And people laughed at them. People uh, sidelined them, marginalized them, didn't ask them back on panel discussions. Like, you know, they were persona non grata. And obviously those people were right. Unfortunately, it's too late for them, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's really hard to see some of these mainstream types in the media and in government and in the military talk as though, you know, hey, I, I was there. I knew this wasn't going to work or you know, whatever the, whatever the line is. I mean, you see these generals today who are trying to wiggle their way out of their own culpability uh, for the policy. They blame the politicians, the politicians blame the military, uh, the media points fingers at each other, uh, backs away. Um, it's, you know, it's a game in Washington, unfortunately, that we see all too often, uh, but as far as the the withdrawal itself, I, you know, I was very, you know, I have to say proud 
to be writing for places like the American Conservative that that obviously have been writing about this for since the war began uh, in, in a criticized in a critical way. And now I'm at the Quincy Institute working for an organization that grew up, you know, uh, only three or four years ago, three years ago proper, probably when it was first seeded. But, you know, that their whole org, the whole organization is to reform the foreign policy and uh, and to you know change the militarized nature of our national security policy and we have been against uh, we have been not against but for withdrawing from Afghanistan and so it it yeah sure it's 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 great to see it that all come to fruition but you know obviously we're not um, we're not under any illusion that this particular administration wants to just stop its militarized foreign policy now. I just think that was one war that was finished. Now we're looking at possibly a new war with China and um, and staying in places like Syria and Iraq where most Americans don't even realize we still are. I've been, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Walter Jones from North Carolina a lot. I, yeah. I, I often wonder like if he were alive right now, what would he be saying about all this? And when I watched uh, Biden's speech a month ago, which already feels like a million years, like I heard a lot of Ron Paul, I heard a lot of Walter Jones, but you know, you had a lot of people that were praising Biden. A lot, some people on the right, mainly some libertarians, who were praising Biden because they're like, "Look, he's understood it. He got it." I didn't get that. I didn't get that feeling from him because when, and maybe it's just a me thing, and I could be completely wrong, but the way he really went out there and spoke, it was like he's throwing out the answers he knows to be true. But it's more of like a cop out. It, it's less of a actual change because the man who was in the Senate for God knows how long, who was the vice president under Obama, not even eight years ago. Like, I, I don't understand. I don't believe this change came suddenly overnight and swiftly took hold of him. And I think he was just kind of throwing it out there to get people to, you know, fight amongst themselves and leave him alone for a bit. But I mean, I was talking. Um, I was talking to somebody who is still active duty in the army about Afghanistan, and he he was there for fifteen months at one point uh, about five years ago. And the one thing I told him that really shocked the shit out of me now was the Taliban on Twitter, because for the first time, and and, and like for context, when I was when I was going through all my training and stuff to be an officer in the army. All our opponents, all of our op four, they were the archetypal Taliban Al Qaeda fighter. They're all these dudes that fought the Soviets and have long, like foot long beards and are in their forties and you know ha- have an aggressive relationship with goats. It's those guys. But this time I'm looking at Twitter and I'm seeing people my age, and I'm seeing people who are Taliban, but they're not. They're not the Taliban that we were told we were fighting. And when enough studies have been done, when reporters have been able to actually speak with Afghan men between the ages of, I think it was 18 and 64, 70% of them didn't even know that 9-11 ever happened. They were just fighting because that's that's what they felt like they had to do. So seeing a bunch of people my age, I'm 26 now, who have literally grown up in nonstop combat against the foreigners, I looked at that and I'm like, how could we ever beat those people? Because we're not beating them militarily necessarily. That's not the key to doing it. It's like we're competing with like people from another planet. And when you're doing that, it's like you can't just beat their will because you'll never do it. You have to beat their entire system of reality. And we're not fighting on that level. It was never going to happen. And it only became real to me when I saw that. Because the idea that they're 26-year-old Taliban fighters posting memes on Twitter was weird as hell. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the 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 uh, the word will is key here. And all, you know, from what I've been reading, you know, and what I've been sensing the whole time I've been covering this is that, you know, there are many Afghan people who don't like the Taliban and would rather not be under the thumb of an extremist religious movement, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have the will to fight it because they didn't feel the same urgency 
to create an American-led democracy the way we had envisioned they would. And that's very complicated. And I'm, I am no expert, no uh, sociologist, and I certainly don't want to try to get into the heads of Afghans as to why they would fight, why they didn't fight, you know, why um, members of their military, which we poured billions of dollars into, you know, you mean the most capable fighting force in the Middle East. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I don't and I don't want to disparage them because I think when it all comes down to it, it comes down to will. And you can give them all the sophisticated weapons and you can give them uniforms and you can give them a paycheck, but you can't you can't ignite what animates people uh, to fight you know, the will to fight for their country. And we didn't know that because, or we knew that on some level, but we we didn't acknowledge or admit it. Instead, we just, we just kept pouring money into the problem and then act surprised when um, everybody laid down their arms and fled. And I feel like it goes back to those early, you know, days of the of the war, when we kept hearing from very smart people who, again, were marginalized in the debate that we don't know who our enemy is. We are uh, we've created like this vision of who we want to fight and who we wanted to fight was what you described, you know, the backwards um, Afghan extremist um, militant Islamic, you know, male who, um, you know, who create or created the conditions behind 9-11. Um, they're only doing it because they hate us. You know, you know whatever we, we heard, they, they didn't like our freedom. And uh, we only went that far with our thinking. We never we never studied the, the culture, the, the religion, the, the dynamics in, in that, Afghanistan that still, proper. Like, that is still like if you go if you go to any like if you go to any advanced school, anywhere across the military right now and they're doing you know combatant training combatant operations where they go into like a little village and stuff like that they're still fighting the 2001 taliban they're still fighting aqi in 2003 and it's like you you can send as many civil affairs people out there as you want yeah but you know i think i don't think I, I, I heard this from somebody today, actually. It's like in a, in a tense and threatening situation, you never shine to the, to the best of the occasion. You always fall down to your highest level of training. And when everything is a nail, you just treat, I'm sorry, when, when, when you're a hammer, you just see everything is like a nail at that point. Yeah. You know, and, I, and, and to a certain extent, that is an excuse. But I feel like when you've been somewhere for 20 years, you, you sort of have the time and, and the leisure, I hate to use that word, <laughs> to actually learn who your enemy is and not fall back on excuses of like the fog of war, for example. You know, I, I feel like they had enough time. And I, I, I think that this is a real problem in the military. I don't know how to, to solve it um, because I think it's a lot more complicated than saying, well, maybe we should have better classes you know, in the training or at the uh, at the academies like the Naval War College or West Point uh, or the, the National Defense University that maybe, you know, maybe they need to like to re-engineer the whole uh, program and how we we learn, you know, but I, I, I there's got to be something surmounting that because I feel if it was that easy, they would have done that. I think there's a there is a deeply embedded culture in the military today, it might not have always been like that, that doesn't reward critical thinking. And it rewards kiss asses and yes men and um, dogma and adherence to dogma. And so people who are promoted through the ranks are not the people who are going to make a firm stand and say, you know what, this curriculum sucks and we're losing the war because of this. Uh, we need to learn better. I did a whole, uh, you know, episode on crashing the war party, but I, um, you know, I've done, you know, other stories or at least edited them, you know, talking about how from the ground up. So we're talking about whether it's West Point or the Naval Academy, all the way through the ranks and the graduate programs that they have sidelined um, history 
critical thinking, um, any aspect of like anthropology or sociology, everything's about engineering in these schools now. And they've really taken away the, the military history that they can, that people can learn from, not the, the doctrine or like, hey, let's learn about this battle where we, we win every time, but it's really about learning from the lessons of our failures. And systematically, they've removed those critical parts of the curriculum in favor for just sort of like the nuts and bolts engineering, uh, where we just basically tell men and women how to think about things rather than uh, allowing them to, you know, um, to, to critically think and share and talk about and learn uh, from mistakes in the, of the past. And I, I, I think, think that has something. a lot to do with it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been something that's been going on for, for decades. And I mean, I think the type of war coverage you get really indicates what the overall mindset is because during Vietnam, like you saw all the civilian damage, like the the photos and stuff that came out of Vietnam were horrifying. Then you really don't see anything after that. You didn't really see much during Desert Storm. You didn't really see much, you know, in Afghanistan for the most part. Like, and when you did show it, it was, oh, well, you know, this is like, you know, pro-terrorist uh, propaganda. What are you doing? And it's like, no, those are those are people, and we happen to bomb their hospital. Even though we're making the new one, it's like, why, why do we have to make the new one? And that, and that gets to the situation where it's, it, it's, somewhat, it's somewhat dehumanizing. And uh, we never when, – when I was coming up in 2013, we never used the term kill the enemy. It was always engage – engage, engage. It was always engage. And how are you going to have enough, um, you know, offensive capability to get past them? I think that language was very deliberate. And the more I look back since I've been out, the more I understand it was deliberate because it is hard to train a person to kill. It's easy to kill someone. It's very hard to condition somebody to think that way because it's not normal. And, um, you know, I think, I think it's a part of human nature. Maybe it is normal, but for the most part, like in civilized society, it's not a normal thing to take somebody and condition them to do that. And it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, one of the benefits of a civilian, of a volunteer army is that, you know, people know what they're getting into, but then there's this soft pawing of it where it's like, you know, you're, you're, you're not telling someone simply to engage. You're saying you need to get through there and you need to kill everybody to get to the other side because it's necessary. It's easier to say engage than to kill. You don't think about it. You just do the job. And, you know, it's, it's one reason why I get so afraid when I see, um, when, when I see you know, the, the ramping up of drone warfare and I see all these, like, Terminator robots and stuff like that. Because like we talked about earlier, it's like people don't feel the pain. People don't really see the damage. And it's, it's been my worry for, year that, for years that because, obviously, a majority of America wants us to pull back. I mean, look at what happened when, like, nine Marines died as we were pulling out. Everyone was in right. an uproar. When nine Marines die... It's an international incident. When a drone gets shot down, that's a little bit scary. When a private military contractor dies, no one cares because right. you're never going to hear about it. And, uh, you know, with, with Eric Prince ramp ramping everything back up, you know, and there yeah. are thousands of others like him, I'm, I'm just worried that we're going to get to the day where it's a lot like, you know, it's, it, I, I talk about inflation a lot right now. It's a lot like inflation. They don't need to pass taxes anymore. They just need to inflate the money supply. Well, we don't need to go ahead and risk the life of one U.S. sailor or airman. Uh, we'll just go ahead and hire these, you know, these scummy people out there and pay them triple the mark. And when they die, no one cares. And, and it's, it's like that. I mean, that's why when I've met Russians – you know, who lived in like the Soviet era, there is somewhat still of an animosity towards the United States post World War II because they look at it and they're like, you guys never had to deal with anything on the homeland. We did. We lost people. We lost everything. And it's, I, I still feel that when I meet people from that, you know, from that part of the Middle East, it's like America, you know, you've been here for 20 years, but you only feel like it, it only lasted like a couple of years. It, it's it's scary because like like what I mentioned earlier, it's it's a whole worldview thing. It, it just comes down to how we perceive things, and you know, for the most part, Americans are just soft on this. And when they when they get when they get really upset, like I don't 
you know, I stopped jumping online and talking to people about it because I just kind of sit back and watch. And I'm like, I'm not surprised. Yeah. not? Well, I mean, we uh, interviewed a, um, a, you know, a real professor by the name of Samuel Moyne, who wrote a book that I really, you know, I'm not really big on recommending books because, you know, everybody's got their taste. But this one I really do because this one really kind of, um, you know, it, it shook me a little because it was a it was a fresh uh, perspective on something that, you know, we kind of take for granted. And what he talks about is how we have normalized war and that we've actually made it more humane. You talk about, you know, this sort of disconnect. We, you know, we we're now engaging in drone wars, as you point out, in which, you know, we don't feel the pain. We don't see the coffins coming back. We just know, well, people are getting killed. We're fighting this war, but it's 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 almost sterilized. And we've done this over time. We've sterilized war in in the interest of making it uh, less bloody, more humane. We've put all sorts of guardrails, laws of war, Geneva Conventions, you know, anti-torture. You know, so we so we feel better about war. But what what does it do? It actually normalizes and extends and protracts wars because we're putting all our effort and making war more palatable, more humane. And that's the, that's the name of his book. It's called Humane, uh, How America Reinvented uh, War and Abandoned Peace, because we've spent all this time, you know, uh, and it's almost a cottage industry of of making more laws around war, but we've sort of abandoned the effort of actually not making war anymore, like making war the absolute last resort and then holding countries to account when they actually launch wars, illegal wars. Um, But since we're the ones that are always launching the illegal wars, we somehow, you know, dust that under under the rug. But I think the point was, is that, you know, with the with the drone wars is an excellent example. You know, somebody is getting hurt. The people on the ground, uh, the people uh, that are actually manning the drones, you know, uh, from their remote facilities in, in, in Las Vegas. We know now that the pilots involved in drone wars are actually suffering from PTSD, we had a uh, great video up at Responsible Statecraft, uh, Jack Murphy, who's a veteran and an investigative journalist. He was interviewed uh, by one of our guys. And, you know, he said that you would not believe, you, know, you would think, wow, they're not doing anything. They're just pressing a button. But what they're doing is, you know, they're following these people around on the ground with these, uh, these unmanned uh, surveillance drones. They call them Eagle scans. And, and they follow them, you know, to the market, to their meetings, you know, down the street, hanging out with family. And then they press the button. Uh, sometimes they don't kill them right away. They have to they have to, to launch another airstrike to finish the, the target off. And then they have to watch the family coming and recovering the body and everything because of technology today. They could see whether, you know, these people are wearing eyeglasses or not. They're so close. And then seeing the bodies, you know, carted off. And it, 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 it is much more intimate than we think. And so we, you know, it, it, there's, an imp, there's a human impact, moral in, injury, they call it, on uh, the soldiers, the, the airmen that are doing this. You have obvious impact on the ground. You're creating more terrorists when you start bombing, you know, people's homes and wedding parties. And, uh, you know, so... Yeah, people, um, regular Americans who aren't connected to the military probably think, yeah, this is the way to go. We want to go after those terrorists. It's nice and clean, but it's not. And but it also creates a situation in that we forget these things are going on and we don't press our members of Congress and we don't press the president or, you know, our elected officials to end things. We just let it go uh, on autopilot. And I think that's probably what you're getting at, Remso, that most people feel so disconnected from war now that they have no skin in the game and they don't feel compelled to end it. I've been uh, I've been taking jujitsu classes for the last couple months because I needed a hobby since I moved to Wisconsin. 
And, uh, you know, I grew up doing martial arts and obviously, you know, when, when you're in the military, you, you do enough stuff like that, but, you know, I, I found a sense of camaraderie in it. And what I've noticed about the people that I take these classes with, we will, we will go hard on each other, like busted lips, black eyes. I had to go to the chiropractor two days in a row this week. Sometimes it's not pretty, but like those people are not people who are like UFC fighters or anything like that. They're just everyday regular people that are preparing themselves for the situation where they might be in a violent encounter, hoping that they never have to do that. But they have that peace of mind. And they're the most peaceful people nicest people I've ever encountered. It reminded me a lot of the military because like these people know what a punch feels like. These people know what it's like when you impact somebody and you injure them or something like that. So because of that, they have more respect for that. And and I think the military is a lot like that because a lot of the most pro peace people I ever met were people that had the, the ability to kill. And I mean, I, I take this phrase from Jason Stapleton, um, you know, former Marsoc Marine, um, eventually turned into a Blackwater contractor, and now he's, you know, he, he rails against the military-industrial complex. He calls himself pro-peace, not anti-war. Because I don't want to ever sound like some people who are anti-war, where it's like, well, war is never the answer. And it's like, no, look at human history. Like, war is as natural as, like, breathing. And it's always going to happen. It's just a matter of, like, what side are we going to be on in this situation? And killing is part of that. Like, it's a cruel, like, it's a callous thing to say, but that's a part of it. And um, there was a Navy SEAL. I don't remember. I think it's Mark Owen. I think it was one of the guys who was part of the Bin Laden raid. They came out years because, you know, all the silent professionals always write books and do movies afterwards. He came out talking against, uh, you know, drone warfare. And he was like, you know, I was a sniper and I would stalk people for weeks. But the difference between me and a drone is that when I killed a person, I only killed him. I didn't kill a bunch of people that had nothing to do with it and then move on with my life. And I can go to sleep at night knowing that, but I don't know how the drone operators do. And yeah. you know, people are so focused on yeah. drones. It's like, you know, I'm, I, I, I am afraid. Like, people don't realize that there are more, there are like more private military contractors in Iraq than there are Iraqis. And then you look at Somalia and Somalia is like number two for the number of people walking around with guns. And it's like, this yep. is not normal. That's not, that's not no. installing like liberal democracy. No. And it's all going on under the radar. And that's a good point. You know, another you know thing that this uh, journalist, Jack Murphy pointed out is that at the, at its height in 2018, when, when president Trump took the gloves off and loosened the rules of engagement, you know, they went back to like Vietnam body count days where everything was about how many strikes you made that day, how many kills you had, how many targets were eliminated. And he said, he said there was collateral damage all the time that the military wasn't reporting. So for every like one target that they announced was eliminated, there were two or three people that were civilians that were not part of the target that were killed that the the military didn't acknowledge. And you have thousands. And, you know, what the latest count that I've seen, um, I believe it was, I believe it was air wars or cost of war, forgive me, but it was something like, you know, upwards of 48,000 civilians killed by U.S. airstrikes since the beginning of the war. And the Pentagon will not acknowledge any of that. That's like a quarter of Fairfax County, Virginia. Yeah. And, but it makes sense because I don't care how precision you get. And that's one of the things that Obama was able or tried to sell the American people that this was, you know, we were precision targeting uh, and that this was cleaner than just dropping bombs, you know, on a city block somewhere. And yeah, maybe that's so, but it wasn't so precision that A, that they only got the target when they're in the middle of a crowded wedding hall, or they were they were actually, you know, um, misidentifying uh, people on the ground. We've seen that, like it just happened in Afghanistan on October, uh, August 30th, when supposedly we were targeting a guy with bombs in his car. And it was one of the, the, the people who've worked for the United States government and his children. And so, yeah, you got the guy and you didn't, but you also got several other people and he was the wrong guy. So how many times did that happen in the quote unquote fog of war, especially when you're telling commanders on the ground, they got to up their numbers. And so now they're pressured to kill 
rather than to be circumspect about who they're killing. And so what was that all about? I mean, it's so another thing that Jack had said was that, you know, you could talk about all of the precision and uh, the, 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 the rules engagement you want, but it's really the commanders on the ground who are interpreting those when it comes down to it. So it's all nice when you're in an office, and you're talking with lawyers and memos and all that stuff. But when it, when you get down to the ground level, anything goes. And, you know, um, like you said, uh, war is a fact. And if these guys want to win and they're on the ground, you know, um, you're not saying you're not you don't have lawyers in disperse with all of these guys telling, oh, no, no, you can't do that or you can't do this. So I say, let's just end, you know, it, I agree with you, Remzo, war is a fact. And I don't always like the anti-war label either because it sounds naive to me. Um, I do like pro-peace. I like non-interventionism. I want to stop the aggressive wars of choice where we make an excuse to attack another country and, and break it all up. And I feel that like that's been going on for decades now uh, since the end of World War II. And I want to end that. I I will never tell, never say I want to get rid of the military or I never, you know, that's bullshit. I mean, we, if we're attacked, we have to be able to defend ourselves. But right now it seems like everything's about offense. It's about building up the military industrial complex the you know, getting bigger toys uh, for the, for the services. It's all geared towards great power competition with China, but are we really ready to get attacked? I don't know. I don't, you know, so I don't even know if, if the money that we're pouring into the military is actually going into the right places uh, to maintain just a, a, a strong defense for the nation. Oh my God. Like during my last year as a, as an officer in the guard in Virginia, we canceled this. This was one of the biggest lies that, um, that uh, Northam and a bunch of other other governors put out. They they were concerned with the fact that you know you had to mobilize a lot of MP and medics to uh, you know deal with triage camps and stuff at the height of COVID and everything else. But then they said, well, you know, obviously we can't stick a hundred soldiers right next to each other in a building or a bunch of vehicles. That would be wrong. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and we're going to have teledrill. We're going to do that. And literally for like six months, it was okay. You all alive? Okay, cool. Send me an email by noon. We'll talk to you later. Uh-huh. And it was like, how the how do you how do you do anything? Who's checking wow. the vehicles? Who's cleaning the weapons? Who's checking the radios? Who's managing the supply? Who's making sure the lights are on? Like, what's going on? And yeah, there were some active duty, um, you know, uh, AGR, active guard reserve soldiers who usually work full time at these armories. But it's like, yeah. you need a lot of people to do that. And you're telling me we did all of that not to get on COVID, but it's like that shut down basically like the guard in 25 states where it was like super bad. And it's like if somebody ever wanted to like attack us, attack us, they could have done it then because I really doubt that they would do anything differently when COVID 20 or COVID the sequel happens. Yeah. And it's like, I look at those situations and, you know, going back to what I said about people understanding what it feels like to be a punch the people that I really can't tolerate having a discussion with about this stuff are the people that have no context that are just like, just bludgeon everything, you know, screw the costs, forget the manpower. They know what they're getting into. It's like that yeah. it's, it's that type of thinking where it's like, that's not what's running a lot of the people that are in Washington advocating for us. That's your dude on the street. Who's just a moron. What, what bothers me is the fact that, you know, now um, you know, I'll be completely transparent. I'm a Booz Allen Hamilton stockholder because I like that dividend. It's it's it bothers me at <laughs> night, but I look at it. But it's like when I saw my 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 stock price go up per share the the day before we we were actually pulling out of Afghanistan. I'm like, what do these guys know? Yeah. Why did it just drop up? Like, I mean, jump up like twenty five dollars. That just doesn't happen. But, you know, I, I'm not surprised. So you said the day before we pulled out or the day before we announced or. Um, it was like a Monday. I remember going on my little Robin Hood app, looking mm-hmm. at my looking at all my stuff. And I saw that Booz Allen Hamilton jumped up a lot. 
And like three days later, it was the last of the American forces have been pulled out of Afghanistan. Nope, wait, there's still a bunch of others. Nope, no, nope, nope, they're they're not they're not all gone. Yeah, but we're out. And I'm like, what the hell just happened? Well, I mean, I had a great piece by Doug McGregor about that same time, who said, you know, don't pop the champagne, you know, now because. All the all the folks in in Washington, including the defense contractors, are seeing a shift away from, you know, the the big deployments that on the ground, you know, uh, troop presence to special forces and the quote unquote over the horizon uh, counterterrorism strategy. And so all of the, you know, all of the defense contractors are seeing dollar signs because they know that the military is going to have to ramp up in a different way, but they're going to need, uh, they're going to need more drones. They're going to, you know, special forces are going to be amping up all their assets at different bases in the region. Uh, so it's not over. It's just, they're, they're it's just a different game suddenly, you know, uh, and that's, I, I don't know for sure, but I'm sure maybe that's what, that's what is reflecting some of the jump there because they said, okay, yeah, they're getting out of Afghanistan, but that means they're going to need us for other things now and quickly because immediately in Congress, they were like badgering the administration saying, well, how are we going to, how are we going to deal with this terrorism problem in the region? And all they want to talk about now is ISIS and, you know, other uh, Al-Qaeda offshoots and being able to respond quickly to terror threats. And all of a sudden, it's all about terrorism again, which means, you know, the the footprint is going to is just going to shift a little, uh, which to me, that's pretty depressing because I feel like very depressing (laughs) because I feel like, you know, it's a classic bait and switch. You say, oh, we're getting we're, we're ending endless war in Afghanistan, but yet we're not really ending endless war in the region. We're just sort of going over the border and into different until into welcoming client states that'll have us based there, but they'll still require men, uh, contractors, you know, um, all sorts of, of high tech weaponry. And uh, and I was hoping, you know, as many people were, is that this might signal the moment where we could start retrenching and getting out of the Middle East. But it, it I'm not that is that remains to be seen because, you know, th- the military is 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 on the hill every day. It seems talking up this terrorism problem, and and as, as well as China, but that's a whole other story. So it just seems like just things just shifted in another, you know, whatever they call the Overton window, just kind of moved into a different direction. And um, I mean, I as as much as I don't like Biden, I really can't imagine how Trump would have done it differently. And yeah. I, mean, I, I say that to say that this is not a a a who's in the White House issue. This is not a what party is in control issue. This shit's been going on for too long of too many different people. And what they basically mm-hmm. just do is say, OK, I'm out. It's your problem now. And it, it never it never changes. It just it just mutates. It doesn't yeah. even evolve. It just it, it, it changes under the worst types of pressure. And, you know, it's like we're, we're not even at a point now where I, I think. I think Jack Posobiec put it in a way that I, I kind of agree with, but I kind of don't. It's like we don't play to win anymore. We just play to lose less. Mm. And that way we can keep it in perpetuity. Right. And, I, and I, I agree with his sentiment for sure. Yeah. Because I get that sense with China. I think when you ask anybody in the military, they'll acknowledge that we can't win a, a full out war with China, like a shooting war. Uh, but that doesn't stop them from asking for more money, from preparing for that war. I think we just want to prepare for wars because that means more money for each of the services. You know, you see the army on the hill this week talking about, oh, we have to get more, we we have to get ready and, and prepared for, for China. You know, we're all in, you know, and the Navy's getting more ships and more submarines and the Marines are doing their thing where they're trying to shift their mission in terms of like not being, you know, amphibious assaults, but doing, you know, things offshore. And, you know, everybody wants a piece of the pie. But I don't think they actually want to fight the war. No, what we need <laughs> because is because I don't. Need, think, I think they know that we wouldn't win, and we it need would be to send, really bloody. What we need to do is we need to create like a radioactive eagle, 
and send it to China and have somebody eat it there and then they can deal with this shit and then we can all laugh at each other and see like see it's not fun when it happens to you either and then we'll just keep the shit going on and it, it just it just never ends like I, I think I, I think when it comes to China and we'll, we'll start wrapping up here it's like everyone is so quick to defend for a war we're destroying ourselves and I mean I, I really think that the American Republic died a while ago I think we have new founding fathers and it's Wilson Roosevelt and Johnson oh. and um, you know it's I, I've been I've been hitting on the Fed a lot recently I don't think we'll ever get rid of the Fed but I think the Fed I don't think the Fed will ever end even if it ends up destroying itself I think it'll yeah. just evolve it'll find some way to keep the peace at the end of the day mm-hmm. but like we'll we'll be different as a result of it, because I, I, I do strongly believe that if America's not here and I don't, I don't listen to people who are like, Oh, we're going to break up and become a bunch of different States. Like, no, if America's not here, son, you're not here either. Cause something really freaking bad has happened. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's like, let's just, instead of winning, let's just aim not to lose a lot and just lose less. And, uh, you know, part of me wants to be wrong about Biden. Part of me wants to believe that for the first time in his thousand year Gilgamesh life, he actually <laughs> believes what he said. I really want to be wrong. There's nothing, there's nothing good about being right if I'm right. But, you know, it was happening while he's been here, while he is here. It was happening before him. It was happening before the last guy. It doesn't die. It just mutates. And that's yep. just, you know, that's why I'm so thankful for shows like Crashing the War Party because you're cutting through the middle and you're really calling – calling out balls and strikes. And just like baseball, there's, there's no ties in baseball. You just got to keep going until you, you get the real answer. And I mean, um, you, Daniel, Barbara, you're the only people doing that within the beltway. Yeah. It's been such a, such a great privilege to get to be part by editing the episodes. They get to hear them before they go out. And I'm always just like, God, where are people going to respond to this stuff? It's always so great. So I thank you so much for that. Well, I thank you because we wouldn't be anywhere without you, Remzo. And I'm not saying that uh, just to blow smoke either. I mean, you've been helping me uh, since way before Empire Has No Clothes on uh, how to produce an effective podcast, where to go, uh, what platforms to access, how to, you know, from the littlest things, like how long should the, the podcast be? And I just feel without your tutelage, uh, we wouldn't be anywhere. So I, I, I'm i glad that you enjoy the show, but I just want to thank you for actually, you know, allowing us to exist in the way that it does. Well, I, I greatly appreciate that. For folks who definitely should be subscribing right after they listen to this, how could they go ahead and uh, subscribe to the show, listen, all that jazz? Well, please go to Crashing the War Party on Substack. That's probably the best way to do it now because then we can get your subscription. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can get all the updates. Uh, that would be that would be wonderful uh, if you could do that. And um, I, I just hope people enjoy it as much as as you and I do. Awesome. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining the program today. Folks, I'll leave you with this. Please do me a favor. Go across Al Gore's amazing internet and do me a favor. Go ahead and leave the show a five-star rating and review. It costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. That takes all of five seconds. You could do it while you're dropping your kids off, while you're, I don't know, about to fall asleep. You find five seconds during the day. You could donate five seconds to me and keep conversations like this going. As always, be safe, be good. Good night.